You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt and not just any elk hunt. We're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. And if you decide to purchase any products from the website, Enter the discount code NATION30. That's the word NATION with the number 30 after that. No spaces. NATION30. And you will receive 30% off your purchase. Welcome, folks, to the Freshwater Bite Podcast, your source for everything freshwater fishing. I'm your host, Lee Kleino. And on this podcast, you will hear from diehard anglers like yourself, the backstories of those anglers, techniques they use, gear reviews, and everything in between. So if you like fishing, turn it up because this episode's about to kick off right now. Welcome back, everybody. This is my first episode from being back from Alaska. And wow, was that wild up there. I went up there moose hunting with my dad and my brother. Um, they actually pulled tags to hunt up in Alaska. I went more for to, to help pack and uh, to get the experience down to go up there to hunt one day myself. Um, but wow, what an experience. And if you're one of those folks that just keep putting off that Alaskan trip, stop putting it off. Go do it. Get on a plane and go, whether you're going to go hunt big game, moose, caribou, brown bear, black bear. If you're going to go up there and fish, saltwater, freshwater, the salmon run, whatever it is get up there experience it it is beautiful country it is i'm so happy that uh you know we get to go there and you know we've got the freedoms here to do so uh, and that alaska is part of our great country here in the us of a get up there and shout out to tony mike and zach um those are the outfitters or the guides that guided us over at alaskabiggamehunting.com I highly suggest if you're looking for a brown bear, moose, um, any kind of one of those hunts, to head on over to alaskabiggamehunting.com and check those guys out. Great guides, great outfits, top-notch, loved every minute of being out there. So, yeah, that's enough about Alaska. But kind of to do with Alaska today, but kind of not, my guest today is Nicole Watson. Nicole is one of the researchers heading this initiative, uh, with Michigan State University working with the Michigan DNR along with a couple other groups and other collaborators all coming together to try to get Arctic grayling back to the northern lower part 
of Michigan where their native waters and streams where they, you know, natively once roamed and lived and flourished prior to the early 1900s. In this podcast, you will learn how and when they disappeared. You're going to learn the methods and the findings that Nicole, her team, um, other researchers from other universities and programs and what they're finding out about the Arctic grayling, why they failed in the past to reintroduce them and what makes their research and their program and their methods now of why they might think that it's going to be more successful than they have been in the past. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. If I could, you know, one day cast the line in my native streams and rivers here in Michigan and have the chance of catching Arctic grayling again, I mean, that would be something I would love to be able to to say, if not have my kids and or my grandkids be able to have that opportunity to do the same, to, to catch such an, an amazing fish in my opinion. And uh, anyways, I'm gonna get right into it here with Nicole. Please, please, please reach out. And you know, if there's anything that you can do, you'll hear her talk about programs and how you can help and donate. If you're passionate about angling, or if you're passionate about just wild species, native species here uh, in the state of Michigan, or even if you don't live in the state of Michigan, I encourage you to uh, to do your part. So please welcome my guest, Nicole Watson. Hey, I want to welcome Nicole Watson to the podcast. Nicole, how you doing? Good. How are you? Great. Thank you for coming on the podcast. This is something that you and I have been trying to set up for a few months now. I know you've been busy uh, up at what you call your fish shack, right? Yeah, it's our hunting and fishing cabin. We refer to it as the hideout. Oh, the hideout. You know, you don't have to tell me details of where it's at, but is it in northern Michigan, I'm guessing? Yeah, it's northern Michigan. Uh, it's in the Grayling area. Awesome. Awesome. So you spend your summers up there or what? Uh, well, this summer I could have spent up there. Um, been working from home all summer. Uh, it's a rustic type cabin. We have, you know, of course, running water and plumbing and stuff, but uh, we don't have television. We don't have Wi-Fi or anything like that. So um, we've just been heading up whenever we get a chance right now. The perfect disconnect, so we just right? shut it. Yeah, exactly. We just technically switched over to upland bird hunting. Um, we stopped fishing at the end of September uh, and then we switch over to upland bird hunting. And then we do that throughout the season. Do you go after the salmon when they come in the uh, rivers and streams up there on the west side or no? Uh, not too often. Oh. I've gone out, I think like once or twice, but that's really about it. Yeah, it can give you, it can be a gong show up there with all everybody coming up there. The rivers are pretty crowded. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> I usually, when I lived up there, I'd always try to get them out in the big water before they came in to the rivers. And then when they came into the rivers after that, um, you know, all the tourists and all the other, everybody else from downstate would, would clutter the river banks and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of stepped away from it. Yeah. It gets a little crowded. Yeah. I like small stream fishing, um, the most quieter, less people, <laughs> good native fish. So, so how did you get into fishing? Have you always been fishing your entire life? Um, I started more since about 2003, 2006. Um, officially the first time I fly fished was when I was nine years old. Um, we use as a family, we used to stay in Grayling at the old Wyandotte Lodge. And there was an elderly gentleman that came from Illinois, I think it was. And he would stay for about a month and fly fish every day. 
And I was the annoying kid that would go down on the dock and just watch him. And at one point he came over, gave me a cane pole and some flies and said, here, just go fish. I think he was kind of, you know, sick of me just staring at him the whole time. So <laughs> started fishing, uh, caught some bluegill and some sunfish right off the dock there at Wyandotte Lodge. And that's, you know, I kind of got to start there. Um, but, you know, only would fish while I was up there. My parents didn't fly fish. Um, and then when my husband and I got married in 2003, um, we started fly fishing shortly thereafter and been doing it ever since. What was the moment where you kind of figured out like, Hey, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. Was there a certain fish that you hooked in or was it just that first fish or did you just enjoy the entire process of learning how to fly fish? Cause I always say on here, it's fly fishing can be intimidating. It seems like a lot of people would like to do it, but I feel like, you know, tying flies or, you know, learning what rod and all that kind of stuff to buy coming from traditional tackle fishermen to, uh, fly fishing, it can be intimidating. So was there a moment or in time that you can remember that kind of got you hooked? Um, so I'm kind of a traditionalist. Um, so I've done traditional archery, um, and then fly fishing. I do leather work, things like that. So I kind of like to do things on my own. Um, and with fly fishing, I think the biggest attraction to it was simply wading into the stream and actually being part of the river and part of the stream. It felt more, um, felt more intimate of a fishing experience than sitting on the dock or, you know, sitting in a boat. Um, it was a challenge. I mean, when we first, when we first went out, we literally tied fishing line to a pole and tried to fish and then finally went into a shop and said, it was actually the fly factory, which is now old Osable fly shop. Right. Yep. Went in there and said, we need some gear help us. And they did this quick fly fishing, uh, casting lesson. And we got back, we went out <laughs> that night on the Manistee and tried to mouse, um, <laughs> which it took us like two hours to wade just around one bend because here we were such novices. Oh, geez. Yeah, but we had a blast. You know, I really think that, you know, it can be intimidating. It can be frustrating at times. Um, But the biggest thing is just go out and have fun, you know? Right. Yeah, and and then, you know, that's something that I've, on a past podcast here this summer that I did, you know, I've, I've challenged myself this year to try to get in and buy my first fly fishing rod and to do exactly what you just said, start, you know, trying out something new, figuring out how to read the rivers and the streams a little bit better and just have fun doing it. Even if I'm not, uh, catching fish, you know, right and left. But I, if I feel like if I can just cast out, you know, to the other side of the bank or something like that, I'll find it as, you know, a success and not get tangled up in a tree branch or something like that. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And you know, you will get tangled. You're going to lose flies. Um, you're going to get frustrated, but I feel like you learn so much every step of the way. Um, and just don't let it get the best of you. You know, um, if you start getting frustrated, you start having, you know, this challenge that you want to cast into a particular area, you know, sit back for a minute, take all your conditions into consideration. How is the wind going? Is it, you know, do you have a lot of wind? Is it a calm day? where's the water that you want to cast and what is the flow in between you and that section that you want to cast to, you know, if it's a nice area behind a log or 
a big boulder that you want to cast to, there could be some faster water between you and that water you want. So you kind of have to just plan it ahead. Okay. And then just think like a fish, you know, where's that fish going to be? Where it ha- where does it have the best opportunity to get its food? And where can it see you? Because that's the other thing you need to look out for is how much that fish can actually visually see you in the stream, not just hear you coming, but also see you. Okay. So you're saying see you as in like where you're standing in regards to it, whether you're upstream or downstream, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, You can go online and look up um, like Kona Vision Salmonid, and it'll show you a nice little diagram of how the fish actually sees underwater with um, just their unique iris gives them a certain cone of vision that they have no way i didn't know that that's awesome yeah well well, cool yeah if i when i when i get into it and i start to uh you know go through my trial and errors i'll definitely you know hit you up and let you know how it's going yeah that'd be awesome so you you developed this love of fishing at a young age and how does that passion kind of bring you to your professional career? And you can kind of announce, you know, what you do for a living. So that way folks can kind of, you know, get an understanding of, of where this uh, love of fishing evolved to. Sure. So I am currently a PhD student at Michigan state university. I'm going into my third year. Uh, It's been a long path. Thank you. It's been a long path to get here. Um, But my, um, You know, it started with having fishing as a passion, really enjoying it, but not really, you know, have a love of science. So first I went into teaching. Um, Then I took a fish biology class called ichthyology. And um, I got into the class and the professor was talking to me. He's like, you know, you can do this as your profession. You can study fish. I was like, huh, you know, I've never really thought of that as an option. So I started my master's degree after working at U.S. Geological Survey in Ann Arbor for a few years on deep water ecosystems. Um, I actually studied uh, juvenile steelhead for my master's at Central Michigan. Ooh. Um, yeah, learned a lot about uh, steelhead. Um, I did a lot of otolith chemistry work. So it's otolith is the ear bone of the fish, and it acts like a journal to tell you where that fish has been based on the water chemistry. Um, so that was really, really a unique opportunity to have, um, circumnavigated Lake Michigan, uh, twice a year for two years doing electrofishing, uh, field sampling techniques. So go into a stream with a battery strapped to your back, basically, um, you stun the fish in the water with an electrical current and scoop it up and you can get, um, you can use that as a sampling method to survey a system. And then you can also use it as a collection method. Um, for the fish. So after I did that, the whole time I was doing that, I thought, you know, it would be great if we could bring grayling back to the state of Michigan and why hasn't it worked in the past and what answers are still unanswered. And thinking about that, in 2016, I attended one of the first meetings for the Michigan Arctic Grayling Reintroduction Initiative. And that started my path to MSU and my advisor, Dr. Daniel Hayes. Um, And now we're answering questions that are going to help with, hopefully, with a successful Arctic grayling reintroduction. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot to untangle there. But 
Um, so, so this, so you've been basically at the beginning of the talks in the program that you are guys are, you know, trying to better understand if Arctic grayling can make its way back to the state of Michigan. Um, some folks may not realize, but obviously grayling, Michigan, the town of, um, was named after, I would assume the, the fish that once ran in the Asaba river. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, so grayling have a unique history in the state of Michigan. Um, they are one of the two remnant populations that originally existed in the lower 48, um, the other being Montana. Okay. And they were the dominant stream salmonid in northern lower peninsula. So if you look at your hand, you know, in the classic mitten shape, anything north of your knuckles was grayling waters. Wow. You really didn't have any, you had some um, prey fish, some non-game fish you would consider, um, you know, minnows, shiners, darters, um, sculpin, things like that. Um, but it was grayling in northern lower peninsula. Brook trout were in the upper peninsula. There was one stream that held grayling in the upper, uh, the outer river. Um, but there's, um, there's question as to if that was a translocated population by settlers or if it was a naturally occurring population in the upper. Um, why, why is the northern, maybe, northern lower part of Michigan, you know, back when they were populating the streams and the rivers, why is that so unique or, I guess, favorable for grayling to live in just that, you know, just those streams and rivers? And then, like you said, the other one being Montana. What about those streams were great for grayling? Yeah, so a lot of it has to do with um, the thermal gradient. So it's nice cold water, real nice and clean. Um, so you had pristine conditions. The food availability was there for the fish. Um, and the substrate was correct. Um, so, you know, your big keys are you have to have a good habitat and the appropriate fish community. And then you have to have foods to support the fish as well. Um, and it was all there in northern lower. So... Yeah, between that and Montana, you had two populations that were doing really well um, until they didn't. Um, so there are no grayling in the streams right now in Michigan. And um, the last grayling in Michigan was, of the historic population was caught in 1936. So they were extirpated after that. Um, so extirpation is a localized extinction. So Arctic grayling itself is still around. Um, they just no longer existed in Michigan. Oh, bummer. And there's, yeah, there's three main reasons um, for that. Um, so it's primarily overfishing. So as soon as word got out that grayling were in Michigan, people started fishing for them. And when you think overfishing, a lot of times you think of, you know, a basket of fish, you know, you took 10 when you were only supposed to take eight, you know, that nowadays is overfishing, right? Right. Way back then it was, um, hundreds of fish. So people would go out, they would have multiple fishing parties and each party would catch hundreds of fish. There's documents explaining that people would catch fish and throw them up on the bank until the pile reached shoulder height oh. of fish and then would take a couple home and leave the rest to rot. Um, 
logging parties were sustained by grayling. Um, and then that brings in the second problem was logging. You know, historically, logging was done in a clear-cut fashion, and you floated the logs down the rivers. And so you were ruining the habitat on the shore. You were getting rid of any shade for these streams. You were sloughing logs down the banks, and you were scouring out the river bottoms. Mm -hmm. And you float these logs down to their destination when the water is the highest, um, which is in the spring. And that just so happens to be when grayling spawn. And they have an extremely short incubation time, too. So not only was it spawning, but within approximately 20 days, the fish were hatching. Gotcha. So that's, yeah, that spring, you know, it was affecting the adults and it was also affecting the fry. So and then you started getting introduction of other fish too. Okay. So this is obviously during, like you said, the early 1900s where basically conservation was, no one really had an idea or an appreciation of Con or I guess it should say it was the end of what you hear about, like you're saying, like the overfishing um, era or right. the overhunting era. Uh, this is, you know, just when, you know, obviously Theodore Roosevelt and things like that started to see things and the natural resources that we had and all the damage that we had done to it. But at that point, like you said, a lot of the damage had been done and exactly. no one had any regards of what that would do or what that would mean for the future of for this, you know, in this case, grayling, like right. everyone just saw yeah. dollar signs with, you know, the lumber industry up in Northern Michigan and they thought the grayling would always be there. But I mean, that's just a classic story about, you know, just another species that we basically, you know, decimated here, not only in the Michigan, but in the United States. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was the late 1800s through the early 1900s um, that were tragic for these fish, you know, so the, you had your overfishing, logging, and the competition from non-native salmonids, um, namely brown trout and uh, brook trout were also introduced to the lower peninsula stream as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the combination of those three um, proved detrimental. Now, obviously, <clears throat> I've never caught a grayling. Um, you know, one day I hope to, but they must be pretty good table fare then, too. Oh yeah, they're um, they're actually supposed to taste better than whitefish. Oh really? Um, more delicate flavor. Yeah, I have not tried grayling. I've fished for them while I'm in Alaska. Um, I've been successful, but I have not harvested any. I've done all catch and release for them. Um, but yeah, I've heard that they um, so they smell. The scientific name is thymalis. Um, they smell like water thyme, um, and yeah, real delicate flavor. So they used to actually sell them. Uh, so that was part of the overfishing is they would catch them and bring them downstate um, and also to Chicago and surrounding areas and sell them in restaurants. So they'd bring them home by the railroad boxcar loads. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what would be, uh, if in your opinion, an average healthy adult fish to to harvest if you know what i mean like wh how big do these things get and you know what's an average size just so people can kind of get a reference uh compared to you know something they might be catching nowadays yeah so it depends on the region that you're fishing in michigan we're expecting them to get anywhere from like 10 to 14 inches as adults 
Um, and we're expecting that they may live to be about seven years old. Um, we have warmer waters than they do in, say, northern Canada and Alaska. The cooler, the colder waters there are going to have the they'll, um, the fish will grow slower because of the cooler water. Okay. Um, and they also live longer in those more northern regions. So Michigan, like I said, you know, maybe seven years, five to seven years. Um, we don't really know yet. Okay. Um, that's looking at how everything is with Montana. Um, and then about 10 to 14 inches, we think size wise, Alaska, um, a good size grayling is 18 inches or more. Whoa. Um, yeah, they're, they're really, really nice size fish. Um, and I think the oldest living or the oldest grayling that was caught was, um, 30 years old in Northern Canada, I believe. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And their, you know, their coloration is very diverse. So, um, the body color of the fish can vary from a really light silver to gold, um, a tannish color, a teal, bluish hue, and also like a rosy color or purple. So they're very diverse. Okay. Um, and they have a large dorsal fin. Um, and the dorsal fin has a very unique coloration on it as well. It's not just like this plain color or spotted color dorsal fin. Um, there's purple and blue and red and um, yellows in that dorsal fin. Um, most vibrant, of course, during spawning season. Um, males have a larger dorsal fin than females. Females do also have that large dorsal fin. Um, larger than like your normal your other salmonids. Is there a, I'm sorry, this might be off topic a little bit, but is there a reason why that dorsal fin is so big compared to other, you know, fish and things like that? Because obviously when you see a grayling, that's like what it's, you know, it's kind of like their flagship of what sticks out on mm -hmm. them. It's what your eye automatically goes to, um, having seen, you know, other trout and things like that. It's notice noticeably different, and is, what is the, is there any kind of special indication of that? Or is that more just for, you know, just the way that they, they navigate or what? Yeah. So, um, there's been some research done into it and primarily it's believed that it has to do with spawning. Okay. I'm sorry, spawning. Um, the vibrant colors that the males get, it's, um, would serve as an attractant. Um, and then the males also during spawning. So grayling don't build a red, um, like other salmonids do. Um, and the males actually will come beside the female and slightly fold the dorsal fin over the back of the female, um, while they're uh, eliciting the female to distribute the eggs, um, that they then fertilize. They have a, um, somewhat adhesive coating to the outer area of the egg that allows it to adhere to the substrate. Okay. Wow. So that super important to have that big thing on top of their bags. Yeah. So I don't know <laughs> if there's other uses. Um, there's actually some interesting videos of, um, European grayling spawning in, I want to say it's in the UK. Um, and you actually in the video can see the male folding the dorsal fin over the back of the female. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Oh, it's awesome. Okay. So we've got the history of grayling once populating our awesome streams and rivers here in Michigan, obviously, we didn't know what the hell we were doing back in the day. 
we decimated the population and we basically brought them to not exist here in Michigan anymore. What kind of talk about, you know, where this, um, this want or this need of, you know, the, or the idea of having grayling back in our waters came from and kind of talk about, you know, your, your involvement with it right now, kind of like what we were talking about earlier before the call, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, about your research in Alaska and how you're kind of using that here in Michigan. Yeah. So Michigan actually has a long history of trying to bring grayling back. Um, but there were questions that weren't addressed all the time. So from like the 1900s to 1941, they were attempting to rear grayling in hatcheries and then introduce fry into the streams and it didn't work. Um, the streams were still in terrible shape. You can imagine after just going through all that logging, um, you know, there was so much sediment, the rivers had warmed, um, the habitat just wasn't there, the water quality wasn't there. Um, They tried again from about 1958 to 1960. And again, it was using hatchery to rear fry, and then introduce them into select streams. Again, it didn't work. Um, And then they tried again from 1987 to 1991. And at that point, since fry really weren't working, they used yearlings um, and some fry at that point. But they noticed with each attempt to reintroduce, you had rapid out migration. So you would put the fish in and then they were just, they were gone. Um, So they were originally getting the eggs from um, Montana and, oh, I want to say it was a lake in... I'm not really sure. It's totally eluding me right now. I'm oh, sorry. Um, but it was out West um, is where they obtained the eggs initially from. And, um, you know, Montana initially when Michigan's grayling population declined in the late 1800s, early 1900s, their population was still thriving. And when you look at it from the migration of settlers throughout the U S you know, Montana was more isolated there weren't as many people there. There weren't as many people fishing there. Um, and so it, it preserved their population more. They then started noticing declines in their grayling population, and they were having similar struggles as well with hatchery rearing the fish, putting them into streams, the fish not taking, out migrating. And they started using um, what's called a remote site incubator, and um, they started to reestablish stream fidelity in populations that they would introduce. Um, So I guess the long story to where we are now is Michigan noticed that, hey, Montana's having some success and they were having the same challenge as we were. Maybe we could try this again. And uh, the Michigan Arctic Grayling Reintroduction Initiative started. Um, You can actually go to a website. It's migrayling.org. Okay. And it'll give you all the history of the initiative, the current initiative. Um, and it gives you the history of the population, um, some background information, and then into the research teams as well. Um, but right now, you know, we're really at a moment where there's a lot of people who are interested in conservation and preservation of species. And our streams are in much better water quality state than they were before. And new technologies are constantly coming up. 
So a lot of people ask you, you guys have tried this pretty much three times before and it hasn't taken what what's different this time. And what's different is we've, we've learned so much from past failures, you know, failing is the best way to learn. Um, and you know, we've done so much research in the meantime. So now instead of just going out and saying, we're going to hatchery rear these fish and then we're going to put them in the stream, we're answering questions that we know are critical to a successful reintroduction first, then we're going through with the reintroduction. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm in the research aspect of it. Um, we're also not using fry this time to stock. We're going to start at the egg stage in the streams. Okay. Um, and there's over 50 collaborators that are all working on this initiative together. Wow. From just all over the yeah. United States, like different universities or how does that work? Um, there's, it's primarily Michigan based. Okay. Um, local TU groups, local universities, uh, Michigan tech was a big player in the early season, just, looking at is the habitat still there? Um, and they started looking into egg incubation units um, and doing some other work as well. And then Grand Valley State further looked into the RSIs. And now Michigan State, um, with my research, we're looking at uh, imprinting, water choice, competition, and predation. Um, but yeah, the big thing is, you know, the research starting with eggs this time, but that collaboration is key. Um, so we get um, our eggs from Alaska, from the interior of Alaska. Okay. It's a strain or it's a same a population of fish that hasn't been stocked on. And so it's really good genetic quality, very genetically diverse. Uh, and so we're starting a brood stock from that. To start the brood stock, it's not, we can't just take the eggs from Alaska and introduce them to our streams here because we could introduce diseases that we don't want to. Okay. So, you, so what we're doing is go ahead. So, so just like, just like anything, like, would it be, I don't want to say an invasive species, but we just got to really be careful of, you know, how we introduce something like this, even though it's was once a native species here. Now it will be somewhat, you know, foreign. So we've got to just exactly be careful of how we can yeah. just throw things back in our water. Yeah. So it's kind of like um, when you're going out fishing and you're on one watershed, you can travel between tributaries of that watershed and not worry that you're going to introduce something else. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. But if you jump to a different watershed, there's a chance that you could introduce something different there. Right. Um, so it's, it's the same thing with this broodstock is you know, we're taking it from a watershed in Alaska that is not connected to Michigan watersheds at all through water. So we want to make sure that we're not putting our current fish populations at risk okay. by, you know, not by introducing a disease unknowingly. So in 2019, uh, Michigan DNR went and assisted Alaska Fish and Game with the egg take. And then I went up to Alaska. I did a, some field work while I was there, um, did some fly fishing. Uh, and I bring the eggs back on the plane with me in a styrofoam cooler. Huh. Um, yeah, it, it, they're my carry-on. Um, and they travel from Fairbanks, Alaska, all the way back to East Lansing in their styrofoam cooler, um, getting all kinds of weird looks on the plane the whole way. I'd imagine. They're like, uh, what do you got in there? <laughs> Especially since it's labeled live animals, 
you know, he really, really gets some weird looks. Uh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I reared the t- in 2019, I reared the eggs in my lab. And on August 1st of 2019, transferred 3,759 fish. We know that because between myself and the technicians, we did literally count every single fish. Um, transferred them to Odin Fish Hatchery. And Odin Fish Hatchery in Michigan had updated their isolation area to where it had a UV sterilization unit on the outflow waters. So they were able to contain a new population of fish. The graylings stayed there until they were certified disease-free, which takes anywhere from 16 to 18 months. And just recently, I think it was last week or the week before, the grayling from 2019, so the 2019 broodstock, was transferred out of Odin, certified disease-free, and went to the fish hatchery in the Upper Peninsula, where they will be allowed to grow until they reach uh, maturity. And then we can collect eggs and milk from them for the reintroduction. And then since they're certified disease-free, we don't have to worry about the introduction of diseases or viruses from them into Michigan waters because they're already in Michigan at that point. How long will it take them to grow into basically reproducing adults where you can then take their their fry and put into mm-hmm. our streams? Does it take them you know, three, four years to get to a, a maturity where they can reproduce or how does that work? Yep. Yep. It's actually three to four years. Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, but in order to have a very viable population, you're going to cross your class as a broodstock. So like so many other things, COVID had different plans for um, everything. And we were unable to get eggs in 2020. So ideally, we wanted to have a 2019 broodstock year class and a 2020 and a 2021. Now we're going to have a 2019, a 2021, and a 2022 year class. So you don't want to cross um, by accident siblings. And if you only crossed, say, 2019 males and females, there's a chance they could be siblings, right? Gotcha. So the way you do it is you take, say, a 2019 male and a 2021 female, and you'll cross those for um, fertilization of the eggs. Then we'll rear the eggs until they reach eyed egg stage. And then you use the eyed eggs to introduce into the streams using uh, the incubation unit stream side. So if it's, you know, say, I don't know, stream a, um, you actually have an incubation unit at that stream to finish rearing those eggs. Okay. So this is such a, you know, and and I'm glad to hear it, but it's not like when you hear about something where people, you know, bring up the idea of, you know, reintroducing fish or we want more of, you know, X fish in our streams or lakes or whatever it is. It's a long process and it's not something that can just happen that year. You know, from what you're exactly, I mean, from I just, you know, backtracking the journey of you going up there, you know, collecting the eggs and then the fry and then bringing them back in the plane for you. And then they have to almost like sit here in a, like you said, in like a, I don't know, like a customs area for, you know, to make sure they're not bringing anything bad into uh, like disease free, like you were talking about into our streams and rivers. And then that takes 10 to 18 months. That's a, that's insane. I had no idea it would take that long. That's a long time. It is. Yeah. And it's just to um, get through all the disease testing. Yeah. Um, So once we have all the broodstock in Michigan, um, we'll be able to, it'll be a little faster. So you'll have that first broodstock collection um, once we have 2019 and 2021 fish that are mature. Okay. 
um, those fish would be certified disease-free. So the 2021 cohort would be ready 18 months after that, then, you know, still need to reach maturity. So we're looking at, you know, five or so years until we have eggs in the streams. So, um, okay. So you're thinking so 20, long- 2024, 2025, somewhere around there where you can actually this whole, ex- you know, basically experiment let loose in our streams to see if it works. Yeah. And so by that time, what's good is, so there's multiple pieces that are all going at the same time. Okay. Um, so, you know, with my research, I'm, I'm in a contained area and everything is isolated. So I can hatch out my, the fish from the 29th. I did, um, actually two years of lab study. So I, did experiments in 2018 and 2019 with grayling. So I've had grayling at, at Michigan State since 2018 um, during field seasons. So with it being a contained area, I can hatch out those fish and then I can do my studies. At the same time, starting in 2019, we also started rearing that broodstock. So my research can be going on, which is also a long process, while the broodstock is maturing. So by the time I have all the data I need and can start analyzing my data, which is already in the works, I'll be able to give them the information that's needed as to where these fish are best suited to go. Okay. Um, so by everyone working together, there's also stream habitat surveys and fish community surveys that are going on right now. So as soon as those eggs are ready for us to stock, we already have answers as to where they can go. Got you. And this is what the 50 different groups or programs all working together all contribute in different ways to make sure that when the reintroduction does happen, everyone's done their, you know, due diligence because they split up the the work that was necessary to figure it all out. Exactly. Okay. Yep. It, um, it's primarily spearheaded by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources in partnership with Little River Band of Ottawa Indians. Okay. Um, and then there's, you know, around 50 other collaborators um, that are all working together. So we have four core teams. We have like a research team, production team, management, and outreach and education. Um, and each team has a different piece of the puzzle that they're working on. And it could be multiple pieces that you're working on at the same time. Yeah. And that was going to be one of my questions too, because, you know, the, like you said, more folks and more anglers and, you know, sportsmen and things like that, they're getting into taking more of an initiative to, you know, protect our resource in, in our species, whatever that might be hunting or fishing, but how much, you know, I got to imagine like the state of Michigan, you know, my question was how involved or, um, you know, in favor of this was the state of Michigan to help out during this process? Yeah. So a lot of it's been spearheaded by, um, Michigan DNR. Okay. And, um, that's where that, the initiative and all the collaborators come in, okay. um, in order to make it work, we do have to have that community support. Okay. Um, we don't want to, you know, I think grayling are wonderful, but not everyone might. Right? right. But we don't want to, we don't want to shove the grayling reintroduction down people's throats and say, too bad, this is happening. We want that support. Um, so the streams that are actually being selected as or considered as part of the reintroduction phase um, are going through a community nomination process. So it's not the researchers and the biologists or the um, 
other interested parties saying, well, I want grayling here because this is where I fish the most. It's that local community or that local Trout Unlimited group that says, hey, you know what? I think we would really like to have grayling here. Why don't we go ahead and nominate this watershed for consideration? And then the initiative starts to survey once it's accepted for a nomination. I like that because, you know, there's different parts of rivers and streams that have different regulations when it comes to hook sizes or what you're able to fish fish with, whether that be just a fly, a single hook, you know, three eighths inch or whatever it is. If you put it in the wrong stream, stretch of water or stream of water, you know, that could definitely, uh, you know, have a huge impact on the success of, you know, the grayling survival. In my opinion, I think, like you said, if it's, if they, if the community gets involved and they know it's in an area where, uh, you know, folks are going to respect and, uh, you know, be behind the reintroduction of the grayling, that's just going to help their success that much more when, you know, everyone's kind of got a watchful eye on it, if that makes sense. Exactly. You know, yep. And I, uh, you know, it's, it's similar to, um, different streams having different regulations, right. um, set forth, you know, as far as catch size and keep size and things like that. Yeah. No, that was interesting because, you know, I would think like the state of Michigan, um, you know, they've got a lot of other demands that they've got a, you know, answer to where folks want, you know, we want more walleye here in this lake, or we want, you know, when you think of the big game fish that folks want, you know, everyone's always worried about the salmon and stuff like that. It was interesting to see, cause I know, you know, when it comes to things like this, I would imagine, you know, it's not like it's endless money I'm sure they set aside, you know, there's grants and they've got a, a lot, you know, so many personnel and all that kind of stuff to, to help out with this. And I'm sure like the big game and everything that people are more worried about might sometimes take precedent over that. So that's why I was asking how much the state of Michigan's involved with it and, you know, helping. Yeah. So funding is definitely limited, um, with, the with the DNR in general, um, in the state of Michigan in general. Right. So that's again, where these collaborators really come into play. Okay. So for example, the first three years of my PhD is 100% grant funded through a private donor. Um, the Wenger foundation stepped forward and said, and offered me a grant to do my research. Oh, wow. Um, so we're using limited state dollars. Um, there was a small initial, uh, funding source from the DNR. And since then it's been private investors, private donations. Um, so for example, not only am I funded through the Wenger foundation, um, I don't know if you've heard of Ironfish distillery in Thompsonville, Michigan. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So they have two inaugural whiskeys. Um, one is a rye whiskey and one is a straight bourbon. And, um, they have a grayling on the front and part of the proceeds of every bottle go to the Arctic grayling research foundation or Arctic grayling research fund. And you, that donates directly to my research. All right. So all we got to do is drink more booze. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So (laughs) the Manistee, (laughs) the Manistee community foundation um, and iron fish distillery got together and, um, offered to help with the funding of my research because a PhD, um, it it takes a lot more than three years. So my laboratory studies alone are taking me three years. And now with COVID, I had a gap year. So my third year of field studies and lab studies won't actually be done until my fourth year of my PhD. 
So it will take me a total of five to seven years to complete all of my data collection, all of my analysis, and all of my um, final write-up of my findings. So it's not like even with the reintroduction itself, the research that I'm doing doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, you have to make sure that you have a large enough sample size that you're answering the correct questions, you're answering them in the right way. Um, and so, yeah, it's really important that the research is being done at the same time the broodstock is also being established. So the timing will be right in between the both of them. So is this what you call, is is this your dissertation, is that right? Dissertation. Dissertation, yep, this yeah, is, okay. Um, yep, I'm in the doctoral program. Um, so when I graduate, I will officially be Dr. Watson. Um, so that'll be, that'll be fun. We got to have a nickname um, for you, like Dr. Watson, Grayling woman or something like that. Well, we said that, you know, we'll play off the Sherlock Holmes and Watson oh, type well, thing. Oh yeah, that's right. I'm, if your last name's Watson, I mean, you have to, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, it, um, it is a long process. So, um, it's definitely really key to have that community support and all those collaborators. Um, because again, that's bringing in that, um, the ownership of the program overall. Okay. Where, um, if more folks want to, you know, get involved or donate or anything like that, do you guys have anything like set up like that where they can go do something like that or get more involved? Uh, so you can go to the MI Grayling page and, um, you can, there's on that site, there's a tab that says support and there's three key ways that you can do it. Um, so you can buy Arctic grayling gear through, um, it's called shoppeninsulas.com. I think it's a, um, it's a site through Michigan DNR. Okay. There's a, a link to Ironfish distillery. Um, so you can donate to the research fund and then Selmo Java coffee roasters also has a Michigan Arctic grayling blend that helps to the overall reintroduction program. Um, so you can definitely help those three ways. Um, and then you can also contribute directly to the program itself and all that information's right on there. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, research has been going really well. I'm, I'm finding, I'm getting answers to those key questions. And the main thing is to just see where these grayling are going to fish fit in with our current fish community. Okay. And to see how our current fish community is going to impact grayling juvenile fish. Yeah. Um, before the call, we were talking a little bit about, you said you do a lot of your research in, you know, predation and how they, you know, compete with other fry, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about that briefly real quick about, how your research, like, cause that was, again, one of my questions is like, how are these things going to be able to compete for food in streams where, um, you know, we do have brown trout and things like that? Yeah. So, um, I start out each, uh, field season and lab season with doing predation trials first. And that's basically, um, trying to find out how grayling fry react to predation from a age one brook or brown trout. And so when I'm talking about, um, the trials that I do, it's in an art, they're in artificial streams in my lab at the contain in a containment center. Um, but my brook and brown trout are wild fish. I collect them from streams in Michigan. Okay. Um, so that way we know we're most likely going to have more of a natural type of behavior in those brook and brown trout. 
So I collect age one brook and brown trout, and I run predation trials. I vary the time, the light, the number of fry, uh, grayling fry, and I record them by video. And we'll look at it to see how the behavior changes in the predator, but then also in the prey. Um, and what we're what I'm finding just through observation, I haven't done analysis on it yet, but observationally, once there's a predation attempt that occurs on a grayling fry and say one of the grayling gets injured. So there's 20 fry that are initially in the stream. Okay. The behavior of the other fish changes. So they'll, um, and it, the type of behavior change also changes through the development of these fry. So when I first put them in there, they're only about two weeks old. Um, and then I do trials until they're approximately two months old. So they may hide in the substrate. They may school together. Um, they may just react differently um, and use a slightly different habitat, like hide in woody debris in the artificial stream okay. versus being up in the water column. Um, so I do that with both brook trout as the predator and then brown trout as a predator and just compare the difference between the two. Plus, that's also going to help us get through get to the answer of how many eggs do we need to have in these site incubators if we want, say, X number of fish at the end of the year. Right, because you're already accounting for X amount being, you know, died or, you know, deceased due to predation or whatever it is. Exactly. Okay. So that way we can account for natural mortality that you're going to expect, but then also those predation gotcha. uh, impacts as well, which haven't been answered yet. So this is going to get to that key answer there. And the management implication is how many eggs do we need? And I'm also going to build a it's called an individual based model that can help me add additional parameters to it as well. Um, then I look at competition. And for competition, I use age zero fish. So at this point, the grayling are about four months old. And I go out and get a new batch of uh, brook and brown trout. They're also age zero. I bring them into the lab, allow them to acclimate in the streams, and I run three different trials that all run for two months at the same time with limited human contact. So I have a control, which is just grayling. I have a brook trout treatment, which is a 50-50 mix of brook trout and grayling. Then I have a brown trout treatment, 50-50 brown trout and grayling. Okay. I feed them remotely. Um, they have like a drift feed and a surficial feed. The only thing we do is we go in every day, check the status of the fish, and just clean out and get fresh food in for them. So it's completely limited human contact and it's video recorded as well. And we're checking growth of these fish. The overall thing that we're looking at is how does growth of the grayling vary in the presence of brook trout, in the presence of brown trout, and then just grayling alone. And what we're finding is grayling show positive growth when they're by themselves, so just in the control, okay. and also in the presence of brook trout. So they grow very similarly, the control and the brook trout treatment. So really, we're finding that they do very well in the presence of brook trout. Brown trout are a different story. Why would that, why would that be, trout, you think? As far as what? With brown trout? Yeah, the brown, well, the, why, would they be, why would they grow more favorably with the brook trout versus the brown trout if they're, I'm just curious, or, or, or what, your, yeah, so, what your hypothesis would be? Yeah, so the brown trout, um, brown trout in general are a more aggressive species. Okay. Um, and they actually push the grayling out of favorable habitat. So um, 
And you, you see it when you just walk by the artificial streams when we're doing our maintenance. Um, the brown trout are also very competitive with each other. So there's um, three individual brown trout that typically become dominant over the stream system, one in the headwater region, uh, one in the like riffle zone, and one in the pool zone. They even push the rest of the brown trout out, but they really push out the grayling. Okay. Um, and and this so is I, grayling with the same age class or the same yep, size. Same age class. Okay, good. Okay. Yep. So they're all right about the same size. Um, and yeah, brown trout will outcompete grayling. Uh, brown trout actually outcompete outcompete brook trout and uh, other native fish species such as cutthroat trout as well out west. Okay. Um. So they are, they are readily known to be a pretty aggressive species. Um, so, you know, the, those answers with competition are also going to help us choose the fish community and can also go into that individual base model as well. So now we know the impacts of predation by species, mm -hmm. and now we're also going to know the impacts of competition. Now, what you have to remember in my artificial streams is it's a closed system, right? Right. So the grayling can't escape the brown trout. There's nowhere for them to go. They're stuck. Now, it could be different once we get into streams in Michigan. Maybe there's a headwater tributary that the grayling can go to in the presence of brown trout. Uh, in Europe, European grayling seek out a deeper hole in the presence of brown trout, which brown trout are native to Europe. Um, so it's interesting that that interaction occurs in Europe. Um, where, you know, brown trout not being native to North America, you do have those impacts on our native salmonid, uh, fish. Okay. Here's a question. But yeah, it'll, all, all of it goes towards answering that question as to where do these grayling fit in? No, I like it. You guys are giving some great scenarios of what they're going to experience in the wild, which is awesome, which is going to give you more, you know, data that you need to make the best decision of where to put these things. Um, exactly. Here's a question I have. When you were talking about the predation part of it, when, you know, some of their, the Grayling's fellow comrades were, you know, being injured or being consumed or whatever it was and having them learn and react to it, is that going to have some kind of impact about, you know, for example, like you said, when one of their comrades got injured or would die, they would go and hide under different structure or logs or something like that. Are you mm -hmm. guys, are you guys figuring out when that happens, you know, these fish are learning, um, based on your environment of where they're going to be at of better parts of the streams to put them. So like you put them in an area where you have more fallen timber, like, you know, or, mm -hmm. you know, gravel or where they can kind of get in between crevices to get away from pred predation and things like that. Yeah. So we'll definitely look for, um, so a stream section that we would choose for reintroduction would be very diverse in the habitat availability. So we would want to make sure that there's habitat that's suitable to uh, fry when they first hatch out and come out of the substrate. So um, grayling are interesting that they need to start eating within three days of hatching. Okay. Um, they have an extremely small yolk sac. Um, so we need to make sure that that water and food availability and habitat is there for them. Then you also need um, the fry stage and juvenile stage, plus also age one and then access to more adult habitat. The interesting thing is some of the reactivity to a predation attempt, um, whether it's successful or just results in injury of the fish, um, can also be attributed to an alarm cue 
that's released from the um, conspecific, so from grayling to grayling. Um, fish, most fish actually release a unique uh, chemical odor when there's a tissue injury. And um, so that alarm cue can serve as a warning. So think of it as like a scented flare that the fish puts out that's getting injured to warn other fish, hey, take evasive measures, hide, save yourself. I got Because you. something bad just happened to me. Yeah, it's getting wild um, over here. Don't come over here. Exactly. So that can have implications as well, too. And that can, you know, potentially, um, you know, save other fish, really, other grayling if they're reacting to it appropriately. Um, and they can also learn the smell of the predator as well. Um so they can start to associate the alarm cue smell with the predator smell. And then as soon as they start smelling predator, take different behavioral steps to avoid predation. Can, can predators pick up on these flares that they send out? Like, hey, you know, I'm, like, I'm hey, not really sure. Okay. All right. That was just, maybe it's yeah, just I've a only, grayling uh, only flare. Yeah. So I've, I've just started looking into the alarm cue. That's kind of like a side project, you know, because water choice and imprinting and predation and competition isn't enough, right? Right. Um, <laughs> so, if, if you don't have enough yeah. on your plate. Yeah. So I started looking into the alarm queue a little bit in 2019. Um, and I think it's worth looking into a little bit more as well when I get the 2021 cohort of fish. So I'm hoping to secure a little bit more funding. Um, some local TU groups and Fly Fishers International actually gave me some, um, I, I got some awards through them for the 2019 um, so I'd like to continue the alarm key work as well. Um, just it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting question and to see how it could have a management implication would be great. Do you ever get sick of looking at grayling all day? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I really don't. Um, but I will say, I think sometimes my own fish tank, um, once my lab is up and running, it, the fish tank at home is like my husband's responsibility at that point. It's like, no, I've cleaned tanks all day. I've been with fish all day. Yeah, I don't want to look at You it. get little fish. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, this is this has been great. There's so much that, that goes into what you're doing. And I'm super stoked that, you know, there's people out there like you that are, you know, as into it and passionate about reintroducing species, you know, back to not only Michigan, but other parts of the United States and the world, because, you know, I think, you know, you kind of hit the the nail right on the head where you said more and more people are becoming aware of what it takes in conservation and wanting to get more involved in conservation, because, you know, I, I think that people have a great understanding now or a decent understanding that these things aren't just going to exist with, unless it's up to, you know, anglers all over the world to get, you know, the, to have a hand in it. So. Yeah. And, you know, the United States is very unique, North America in general, in a lot of our native fish, uh, salmonid species and other non-salmonids that we have. And, you know, we really need to start considering impacts that we have on these native fish populations, like cutthroat trout in general, um, out West are, you know, their population is declining and a lot of it can be introduced, can be attributed to non-native fish being present in those systems. And, you know, it's one of those things where some of these fish species, like grayling, we're fortunate that there's still Arctic grayling populations available for us to use as a broodstock, to create our own broodstock source, where there's 
you know, cutthroat trout populations that are completely isolated in headwater streams right now. And that is the only area that they've been able to survive. And if we don't help conserve those populations, you could lose an entire subspecies of cutthroat trout forever. Wow. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's really things where as fisher people, um, we need to start thinking about things like that. You know, do you want to keep this fish around or do you want that fish to disappear in our generation? And we can do things that will prevent that from happening. In your opinion, do you see it getting better over your years of research and involvement? Like, do you, do you see more anglers, you know, taking it beyond the fact that they're just, you know, throwing, um, you know, a line in the water, like they're getting more involved outside of, uh, you know, just, just fishing. I think a lot are, um, I think the big thing is just getting the word out there. Okay. Um, getting people to be passionate about what they do. Um, I mean, you, you can't fish for some in dirty water. You can't breathe well in dirty air. And it's our, it's our time to make sure that we're protecting all of that. Um, because we now have so much research and so much information available to us that we need to use it to our advantage. Gotcha. Last question, and then I'll let you go. And this is something that I wanted to talk about earlier. I just forgot to ask it. You said that grayling, the the stock that you took from in Alaska, or I'm sorry, in Canada was... Alaska. Alaska was... Can they survive, do you think, in a lake in Michigan, like a cold inland body of water? Or does it have to be... Or do you see it only for the near future working in streams and small rivers? I mean, it depends on um, the water quality of the inland lake. Okay. Um, so a lot of these fish are, the grayling are migratory fish. There's different life history strains though. So you do have grayling life histories that will live in a lake and they'll spawn in the inlet or outlet. Okay. And then they come back and they live in the lake again after spawning. Um, and then you have a stream life history that they just want to stay in the stream. They may migrate within a watershed, you know, from a headwater tributary as a juvenile mm-hmm. and then to bigger water so they can grow and find more food, but then they'll migrate back to that headwater to spawn. So as long as you have the habitat available to them and you have the right life history and the water temperatures are correct, you could I mean, you could definitely see them there with, you know, pending appropriate water quality, temperature, food availability, and fish community structure. Um, They could. Similar to like steelhead and rainbow trout almost. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Okay. Um, You know, and it's interesting with um, steelhead in Michigan versus steelhead in um, their native range in the Pacific coastal region. You know, they have a very... um, large distance that they cover in Pacific coastal region. So you can have a steelhead that hatches out the following year, migrates out to the ocean. And within the same year of migrating out to the ocean initially could be found off the coast of Japan. Wow. And so when we have steelhead in Michigan, that's things we need to consider that these fish will have a very large migratory region. They're not just going to go from the river to the lake, barely move around and then come right back you know, they could go in all different suitable areas of the lake before migrating back to that stream. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, 
Steelhead of uh, I mean, you said that you did your some research and involvement in Central Michigan with steelhead too. I'll have to have, maybe get you back on here one day to talk steelhead because that's another species that I'm super you know interested in as well. And I think a lot of folks, especially here in the state of Michigan, have a have a passion for as well. You know. Yeah, they're they're an interesting fish. Well, cool. Well, Nicole, thank you for your time. Um, obviously, I, we already have the uh, the website and the spots where people can go to donate. Where can people follow you and uh, kind of follow along your journey? Yeah, so on Facebook, I'm under Nicole Watson, and it's usually like a picture of me in Alaska, a grayling on the banner. Um, and then on Instagram, um, I'm, I'm kind of technologically um, not savvy. So I tried to be the scientific name for grayling, which is Thymalis arcticus, and I did T underscore arcticus. So on Instagram, since it does not like underscores, I'm Tarcticus. So it's T-A-R-C-T-C-U-S, Tarcticus. Okay. okay. And then Twitter, I'm not on that much, um, but I'm Nicole W. Grayling on Twitter. So primarily Facebook, Instagram, um, and then I, I do um, presentations here and there for different trout unlimited groups as well. Um, so some of those might pop up here and there. Um, but yeah, always feel free to shoot me an email. You can look up my email on uh, Michigan State Department of Fisheries and Wildlife page if you want to contact me as well. Perfect. Well, I'm going to keep following your journey. And then when we start to see, it, you know, the, these classes come in around the 24, 20, 2025 era, uh, this podcast I hope is still running up and running by that time. I'm definitely going to have you back on here because I'd be very interested to see how things are going in the future. Yeah. It's either that or we'll have to do the podcast out in the field on a stream. Oh my God. I would love that. I think that'd be good. Yeah. That would be great. Maybe, uh, after, uh, you know, you can teach me some fly fishing lessons. Exactly. (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, thanks Nicole. I appreciate your time and, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see, talk to you soon. All right. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me on. It was great. Yep. Bye. Bye. Well, let's cross our fingers and our toes and let's cheer on Nicole Watson and their team of researchers and the whole crew putting in efforts and, you know, heading this initiative to reintroduce the Arctic Grayling back to Michigan waters. Please try to do your part. If you guys want to donate in any way, I will leave those in the show notes below. Um, feel free to reach out to myself and or to Nicole to see how you guys can help out. And remember to head on over to, there's a couple websites where you can kind of help out. If you go to mymigrailing.org, that's one of the websites that you can go and click on how to help um, support the program. And then the other thing you can do is you can go and buy a t-shirt from the shop, shoppeninsulas.com, shoppeninsulas.com. Uh, and there's a shirt, the Michigan Arctic Grayling Initiative t-shirt for $29 that you guys can also buy. It's a cool design on the front. And uh, again, some of those proceeds, 10% of all those proceeds, uh, directly support the Michigan Arctic Grayling Initiative through the DNR. And uh, remember to also check out the Salmo Java Coffee as well. And uh, yeah, let's get behind this, guys. I want to thank Nicole for coming on the podcast I learned a ton of information and it's great to have people like Nicole and other folks in the program out there fighting and doing everything they can to get this program up and running. I want to see Arctic Grayling back in my streams and waters here in Michigan so I don't have to fly all the way out to Alaska 
although I wouldn't mind, and uh, Montana to catch grayling. If we could do it here in our home state of Michigan and bring them back to the Midwest, I think that would be pretty badass. So anyways, folks, we've got more podcasts coming, more like this where we're kind of getting to know the fisheries, um, our previous fisheries, and some conservation things that we're doing here in the Midwest uh, to protect our fisheries and um, our lakes, rivers, and streams. So in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.